if you have a Bible, this morning we're going to be looking at two portions of Scripture. First, I want you to turn over to the book of Genesis, chapter 48, and then maybe just with your uh, finger, just place a mark on Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. But before we get to the text this morning, you know, I was just thinking back stage as I was worshiping back there um, and praying and, and, and just kind of soaking in the moment. Um, here in about two weeks will mark the 10-year anniversary of my surrendering to ministry when I was 15 years old. And um, when I surrendered to ministry as a sophomore in high school, had no idea what I was getting myself into, really didn't feel qualified. But I just felt the Lord press on my heart to tell you this morning that if you knew me before I started following Jesus, and if you knew me before I accepted the call, that he placed on my life, you would say, how in the world are you standing on stage preaching to us today? And so I just want to let you know that if God can change me and God can help me step into my calling, I want you to know, brother or sister, God can do the same for you. If God can save me, he can change me, he can, he can take me out of my sinful life and put me in to a holy living life. Not only that, um, where I'm in church and serving, but where I'm, I'm actually thriving in my relationship with the Lord and I'm doing everything that I can to build the kingdom when it wasn't so long ago that I was building a kingdom for myself. Man, he can do it for you too. And so as we get into... Our text this morning in Genesis chapter 58, um, it was even said, I said this in life group this morning with the youth, that anyone who knows me would tell you that one of my spiritual gifts, I often say, is sarcasm. And so because that's one of my spiritual gifts, I believe, sometimes people will ask me when they hear that I'm preaching, they'll say, hey, Noah, what are you preaching on? And I'll always respond with the gospel, you know, trying to be funny. Um, But if you were to ask me that same question this morning, the answer would be the same. But there wouldn't be any sarcasm there. And you may be thinking, Noah, like the gospel, like the simple death, burial, and resurrection, the the story of Jesus, the simple John 3.16 gospel. Noah, we're, we're seasoned Christians. I've been in church all my life. No, 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 go, go preach that. To lost people, we, 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 we got the gospel. We figured that out. Well, friend, this is what I want you to know. Don't miss this. For me and for you, none of us ever graduate from the gospel. None of us ever get to a place where we don't need to hear, don't need to think about, don't need to study, don't need to live in the reality of the gospel. So whether you've been in church 75 years or you don't have a relationship with Jesus and this is your first time in church this morning, this is what I want you to know. We all need the gospel. Today though, I want to show you that not only should the gospel be the center of our lives, but I want to show you something cool which I believe teaches us that the gospel is also the center of God's redemptive love story called the Bible. So in Genesis chapter 48, we pick up 
after a pretty wild story about the life of Joseph. And in verse 1 of Genesis 48, it says this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Those are two important names, so I'm going to read them again, and I want you to say them with me. Here, one, two, three. Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel, that's Jacob. So when you see the word Israel, the name Israel there, that's just Jacob. Then Jacob summoned his strength and sat up in his bed. Now let's skip down a little bit to verse 8. Skip down to verse 8. It says, when Jacob saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me that I may bless them. Now, the eyes of Jacob were dim with age, so he couldn't see very well. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Jacob said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both Ephraim in his right hand towards Jacob's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand, though, and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, and crossing his arms, he did this. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And then Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, just one verse, this is what it says. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. I'd like to title this message this morning, When God Crossed His Arms. When God Crossed His Arms. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for the time that you've given us. And God, as we dive into your word and we unpack what it is that you want to show us, Lord, I pray that you would start preparing our hearts to respond to what it is that you would have us respond with. And God, I pray most of all that if there's anyone in here who doesn't have a relationship with your son Jesus, that today they would walk out the door saved, the same door that they walked in lost. It's in that name of Jesus that we pray. And everybody said, time flies, doesn't it? I, uh, I read somewhere that in just a little over a month, we are going to be halfway to Christmas. Whew. Seems like we just started the new year, right? But no, 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 we're almost halfway to Christmas. And you know, I enjoy the Christmas season. I really do. Like, there's a lot of things that I look forward to. I look forward to getting together with family, and I look forward to hanging up the lights and doing all that type of stuff. But there's one thing about the Christmas season that I don't look forward to, and it's this. Hallmark movies. Um, see, see, here's the thing. Does anybody else's wife during the month of November and December just put the TV on the Hallmark channel and leave it there? Anybody else? Or is that, is that just my wife? Or anybody else do that? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, have you ever watched one of these Hallmark movies? One of these Christmas Hallmark movies? They got all the same actors. All the same plots. 
And uh, you may love Hallmark movies, and you may be like, Noah, don't talk about that. Hallmark movies are my favorite. Well, I just want to encourage you this morning in the house of the Lord that there is grace and forgiveness readily available to you if you'll just repent of your sin. Because those movies are terrible. Like, like you watch them, and you're like, oh my gosh, like how could anyone think this is good? Now, you may be in here, and you're like, I don't, I don't really... I don't really get this, Noah. I don't really understand what you mean by Hallmark movies. I've never seen one. Well, if you've never seen a Hallmark Christmas movie, I'll go ahead and summarize every single Hallmark Christmas movie that has ever been made. In fact, I know these movies so well just by watching a few of them that I even wrote a script, a plot, if you will, to uh, a Hallmark movie that I'm going to send in to the Hallmark channel to see if they'll take my movie. So would you mind if I just shared the plot of the Hallmark movie that I made? And I want you to see if this sounds familiar. Can, can, I, can I do that this morning? So here's how it goes. Who said no? That's my type of person there. Here's how it goes. Cindy is from a small town called Cheersville, Ohio. But she's living... In New York City, working for a Fortune 500 company, focused solely on her career and moving up the corporate ladder so much that she forgets the value of her family back home. And while on a date with her soon-to-be fiancé, Tom, who is the CEO of a different Fortune 500 company, she gets a call from her mother, who is the owner of a small bakery in Cheersville, Ohio. Her mother is no longer able to run the bakery by herself due to a health issue in old age. So she asks her daughter to come back and help her get through the holidays by helping out at the bakery. She comes back and she meets a man by the name of Chase who is wearing a red sweater, which he will wear for the entire duration of the film. Cindy is torn between the lights and glamour of New York City, which is symbolic of Tom, and the feeling of warmth in family, which is symbolic of Chase. See, Cindy falls in love with Chase and breaks up with Tom, but then there's a plot twist. It turns out that Chase has a secret. The reason why the bakery was failing is Chase accidentally sold the secret family cookie recipe to the bakery across the street. And so Cindy gets mad. She she breaks up with Chase and everything. She feels betrayed. She tells Chase to get lost. The bakery announces that they're closing up shop. And then, in the end... Santa Claus just comes in and saves the day. Santa Claus comes in and saves the day, and they get back together. And at the end, uh, they're all in the middle of the square, and they all sing, I wish you, you know, you know, Merry Christmas, blah, 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 whatever these Christmas songs are. And then right there, Chase proposes to Cindy. And she's like, oh, my gosh, I, we don't have time to get married. And Santa Claus steps in and says, hey, we'll do it right now. And Santa Claus performs an impromptu wedding right there, and the town goes crazy. They clap, and that's the end of the movie, and they live happily ever after. Do you think I could get that on the Hallmark Channel? You've seen that one. Praise God. You know, uh, you may not watch Hallmark movies, but like me, I bet a ton of you are guilty of binge watching. Anybody? You like to binge watch TV? Um, so, so I started binge watching this show um, about the royal family. And I got so interested in things of the royal family that I started to study and look up stories and try to figure out more history about the royal family. And I heard an amazing story about Queen Victoria. Um, Queen Victoria, during her reign, um, she was, you know, queen of England and she, everything was great. And then one day, 
a evangelist came in to their area and started preaching. And he had this line that he kept saying throughout the whole sermon. He'd say, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And he said this. And then later that night, he had dinner with the queen and the rest of the family. And the queen walked up to the evangelist and said, is Jesus really coming back? And he says, yes, your majesty. Yes, Jesus is coming back. And she says, oh, I hope he comes back in my day. And the evangelist was puzzled and said, well, your majesty, um, why, do you, why do you want Jesus to come back in your day? And she said these words. She said, oh, how I would love to lay my crown at his feet. And we think of that and we think, yeah, if I was the king or queen of England, I'd probably do that. I would have no problem laying my crown at Jesus' feet. But, but here's what sometimes we often forget. Me and you, by nature, are kingdom builders. We're either building the kingdom of God or we're building the kingdom of ourselves. And you see, this is what the queen understood. She understood the gospel story so much in depth, so much of, of, of all that it's, it, it teaches and everything that it requires that she was willing to lay her crown at the feet of Jesus and say, I belong to you now. And so my question for you is, are you building a kingdom for yourself or are you building the kingdom of God? And if the answer to that question is, I'm building a kingdom for myself, I would be willing to guess that it's either you've never heard, never experienced, or have become desensitized to the depth and the beauty of the gospel. Because when we truly understand the gospel and all the implications that it means for us, we have no choice but to lay our crowns at Jesus' feet and say, I owe my life to you. And so this morning I want to look at three realities, I believe, of the gospel story. The first reality we see is that of redemption. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 there. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. Now, this word redemption here is a very interesting one. The word redemption in the original language conveys this idea of buying something back that was lost. It means to be redeemed, to be brought back by payment of ransom. I heard a story once of um, a young boy, a uh, teenager, who had a hobby. Do y'all remember? There's not many uh, of these around today, I don't think. Do y'all remember when people used to build like these boats inside of these big bottles? Do you remember that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the te- technical term of that is. But um, this boy that he picked up that hobby and he spent hours and hours and hours and weeks and weeks and weeks on building this boat in this bottle. And he finally got done with it and it was the most proud he's ever been of anything he's ever done. And so he set it up on a shelf and he loved it so much that he would just, he would just look at it. He would just sit in his room, no TV on, no music, not on his phone, not reading a book. He would just look at his boat. Well, one day, he goes to church camp um, that summer, and he has a great time with his friends, and he gets to learn more about Jesus. And when he gets back, he's like, man, I can't wait to see my boat again. 
And he gets back and he walks in and he sees that his boat is no longer on the shelf in his room. He thinks, well, that's weird. Maybe mom was just cleaning my room and she put it somewhere else. And so he goes and he asks his mom, he said, hey, mom, have, did you uh, put my boat somewhere? And she says, what are you talking about? And he says, you know, the boat that, that was on the shelf. And she said, did you care about that thing? And he said, oh, my gosh, like, like I love that. I spent all this time. And she says, oh, honey, while you're away at church camp, I had a yard sale and I sold that boat for five bucks. And the boy was devastated. And so he forgot about the boat and he said, just move on and maybe think about buying and the stuff to make another one. But that summer they went down uh, to the beach. And while they were at the beach, uh, the first day that they were there, the boy said, hey, I want to go to one of the surf shops. You ever been to a, one of these surf shops? If you've never been, it's basically a place where you can buy stuff that you'll never use and waste all your money. Um, but he gets to one of these surf shops, and he's looking around, and he sees that there's a display shelf of all these bottled boats. And he looks, and he goes, man, that one on the top shelf looks pretty familiar. He goes, no, nah, it can't be. But then he remembers, he remembers oh, I signed my name in a Sharpie on the bottom of my boat. So just for giggles, just if there was a small chance, he walks up to the boat and he picks it up off the shelf and he turns it over. And lo and behold, his signature is on the bottom of this boat. And he's excited. I found it. I found my most prized possession. And he, he walks up to the owner of the surf shop and he says, this is my boat. He even writes his signature on a napkin to prove that it's his boat. And the guy goes, hey, I believe you. That's amazing. You can have this boat for $2,000. The boy's devastated. He doesn't have a, a dime. And so he goes back home and he's sad and he's distraught. But then he decides, you know what? This summer, I'm going to start printing out flyers and putting them up all around town asking if I can go mow people's lawns. And asking if I can rake leaves. And asking if I can wash windows. And asking if I can do anything to raise the money. Because we're going to go back next year, next summer for vacation. And I'm going to raise this 2000 bucks. So when I go back, if the boat is still there, I'm going to buy it. And so the boy works hard, long days, all summer. Until he finally gets enough money to buy the boat back if it's just there. And so they go back next year, and the first place he gets as soon as they get to the campsite, to the, to the beach, their hotel, is he walks directly to the surf shop. And lo and behold, his boat is still on the shelf. And this boy walks up, and he grabs the boat. He sees the owner behind the counter, and he goes, and he pulls out the $2,000 cash. He slams it on the table and doesn't even say anything to the owner. Walks right out the door, and as soon as he gets out the door, he looks at his boat, and he says, Okay, boat. Now you're twice mine. You see, whether or not you've accepted Jesus, you were made in the image of God. Every single person that we pass on the street, whatever they look like, whatever their skin color is, whatever political affiliation they ascribe to, they were made in the image of God. So in a way... Every single one of us on earth, we're all once gods. But then this thing called sin crept in to where God's most prized possession slipped away from his grasp. 
And I don't know about you, but if I was God, I would have been okay just saying, oh, they messed up. I don't need them anymore. But here's what God does. And here is the love of God summarized in just a few sentences. It's that God, when he could have just written us off, when we slipped away because of sin, he was willing to go to work, to step into human flesh, to go on a suicide mission in order to, watch this, pay the price to buy me and you back. God loved us so much, Romans 5, 8 says, that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, friend, what you need to understand is that your salvation had a price that you could not pay. But Jesus was willing to go and do whatever it took to buy you back, to restore and redeem your image. So how did he do that? Well, the text tells us by his blood. Hebrews 9.22 says this, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so our sin broke our relationship with God. And the payment that had to be paid was blood. And so Jesus says, if it's blood that's going to buy my people back, then blood it will be. And Jesus willingly shed his blood on the cross of Calvary for me and you to buy us back, to redeem us as his people. That's good news, amen? But here's my question. Have you accepted that redemption that the blood of Christ purchased for you? If not, you can do that today. I'm not asking you if you've been in church before. I'm not asking you if you've been to Sunday school. I'm not asking you if you've been a VBS teacher. I'm asking you, have you submitted and accepted that God sent his son Jesus to shed his blood, to pay the penalty for your sin, and because of that, you can be redeemed? Have you accepted that? If not, you can do that today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. The second reality we see is that of the trespass. If you go on in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And so when the Apostle Paul says the forgiveness of our trespasses, the idea he's trying to convey is this idea of a cancellation of a legal charge against someone. It would be the idea of someone getting caught red-handed in a crime so horrible that they could never serve the penalty. They could never pay back. They could never make right for the crime that they committed. And they had no escape for the punishment of it. Later on in, in the letter of Ephesians, Paul reminds the church in Ephesus of this when he says, you were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in your trespasses. Paul was saying, you had so much punishment that was going to come your way. There was not a single thing that you could do. Um, sometimes, um, can I be honest with you? Sometimes I get a little frustrated at myself during worship um, because some days I just don't feel it. You, you there with me? Can we just be honest and vulnerable? Sometimes the songs are you know, being sung and the, the songs are amazing and the worship team, we're so blessed with a great worship team. But sometimes I'm just like, ah, I don't feel it. And sometimes when sermons are being preached, I'm like, ah, I just don't feel it. But, but, but here's 
where I'm convicted sometimes means you forget that we were no one except people who were destined for eternal damnation until Christ stepped in and saved us. And so when you step into worship with that perspective of if it wasn't for Christ making me alive, changing me, I would have eternal separation from God. You walk in with that perspective, I bet you sing songs a little different on Sunday mornings. I bet you wake up with a little bit more pep in your step. But Paul says you were dead in your trespasses. Um, how many of you have ever been uh, to like a church camp or church conference or, or anything? Show me, show me your hands if you've ever been to one. Um, chances are, if you've ever been to one of these um, camps or conferences, you've probably heard an evangelist say something like this. They give this illustration. This is one of their favorite ones, and I've used it before. Um, you know, hey, uh, if you were drowning in the ocean and, and you, you had no hope, you were going to drown and there was no help around, and then someone threw you a life preserver, what would you do? You would reach out and you would grab that life preserver and then they would pull you safely into shore. Well, that's what God's doing. He's throwing you the life preserver. All you have to do is reach. Just reach. Just reach out to him. Here's the thing. Dead men don't reach. They can't. And so a better illustration instead of, hey, take a hold of this life preserver would be, me and you weren't drowning at the top of the water. No, no, no. Me and you were nothing but bones and corpse at the bottom of the ocean, unable to do anything. To save ourselves. But God loved us so much that he went down into the depths and formed us back together and then says, hey, want to follow me? See, the thing about being dead, spiritually dead, is that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 puts it this way when it says that salvation is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We were caught dead in our trespasses, but God, this is what Paul says later on in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. So even when we were drowning in sin with no way to save ourselves, God brought us back to for life and forgave us of our trespasses. Paul is saying here, hey, guess what? You had to pay a price. Your debt was so much over your head, so much more that you can pay. But here's the amazing thing. Your debt has been canceled. If I got a call tomorrow and they said, Noah, this is uh, the Department of Education. All your student loans have been canceled. Y'all would see me go straight up Pentecostal in here. If, if, you're, if someone called you today and said, hey, that mortgage, it's been paid for. Would you go, oh, that's great. I might devote two days a week to it if my schedule works out with it. No, no, no. It would change your life. We had a debt against us that we had no 
chance of paying. But Jesus canceled that debt. Colossians 2 says of this, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Church, it's good news that God has forgiven our debt. Lastly, this morning, I want us to see the reality of God's amazing grace. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So God has brought us redemption. He's forgiven our trespasses. Why? Because he is so rich in his grace. My friend Eric Geiger tells a story of every single day when he gets off work, he runs to the pantry and he gets out a bowl of Cheez-Its for his two daughters because that's their favorite snacks. That's all they want when they get home from school is Cheez-Its. And so he says, I dedicated a whole pantry just to boxes of Cheez-Its. He said, if you were to walk in, it would look like I own Cheez-Its. like just boxes 10 foot high and 10 foot wide, just Cheez-Its for days. And he says, my girls, they look forward to getting a bowl of Cheez-Its every day after school. He said, but, but what would happen if my girls get home from school one day and they say, hey, Dad, we want a bowl of Cheez-Its. And I go in and my pantry is just full of boxes of Cheez-Its. And I go in and I get one bowl and I take a Cheez-It out, just one, and I put it in that bowl. Then I get another bowl. And I reach in, get another Cheez-It, put it in that bowl, just one cheese in each bowl. And I walk up to my girls and say, here you go, bon appetit. They would be looking at the pantry and saying, you have all these Cheez-Its, but you can only give me this little bit? That, that makes no sense. But friend, that's how a lot of us, and watch this, that's for a lot of us the devil wants us to be here and the devil lies to us about this. A lot of us think that's how God gives us his grace. Man, he, he just gives me a little. Or he doesn't have enough to forgive me uh, of my sin. Noah, I know that this forgiveness thing is a churchy thing to say, but, but you don't know what I did years ago. You don't, you, you don't know what my marriage is like. And, and you don't know what I've done at my job. And you don't know what, what I do when no one's around. And, and there's no way that God could have enough grace to forgive me. Friend... I don't know what your sin struggle is, whether it's this small or it's huge, but this is what I do know. However much sin you have that the devil keeps beating you up about, he doesn't want you to know this truth, and it's this. God has twice the amount of grace to cover any sin that you could commit. See, God is rich in his grace. God is not going to run out of grace the same way that Eric was rich in Jesus, God is rich in his grace. And so some would say this. Us wondering if God has enough grace to forgive us of all of our sin is so dumb. Some would say that us wondering if God has enough grace to forgive all of our sin would be like a toddler standing on the beach looking out at the ocean, wondering if there's enough water in the ocean to fill its sippy cup. God has so much grace. 
Romans 5.20 puts it this way when it says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And I don't know about you, you may be great. You may be one of these super Christians, but let me tell you something. I'm not. I need the grace of God every single day. So this morning, I am excited and thankful that for however much sin I have, God has twice the grace. You know, uh, as we close out this morning, as the band comes up, you may be thinking, um, great, Noah, love it. Love that we just unpacked Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Why did we read that obscure passage in Genesis 48, though? Are we going to talk about that? So here's the thing about Genesis 48. Just a little breakdown of it. What we see is that this was a Jewish custom in the life of when someone had grandkids. See, what would happen is, is that when a grandfather was getting ready to pass away in the upcoming years, if he had grandsons, they would bring the grandsons to the grandfather, and the grandfather would basically, you know, place his hand on the grandkids' head and pray a little prayer, abracadabra, and give them a blessing. And if they did that, then, you know, they would be blessed throughout all their adventures. That's what they believed back in the day. And the right hand of the grandfather was what they call the hand of double portion blessing. If this hand was placed upon your head when your grandfather prayed the blessing over you, man, they believed you would be rich, you would be successful, none of your enemies would be able to overtake you. There was also the left hand, but the left hand was kind of like, yeah, you too, buddy. So you wanted the right hand to be placed upon your head. And here's how the Jewish custom worked. The right hand was always placed upon the head of the firstborn son. And in our story, that was Manasseh. The younger son's name was Ephraim. You know, a lot of times in these Bible stories, we ask, okay, where, where am I in this story? Well, in this story, me and you are Ephraim. Me and you are the undeserving son. Me and you are the sons who don't deserve the double portion blessing. Because of sin, we deserve essentially to be separated from blessing forever. And so the reality is, is that Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. Not y'all have sinned. No, no, no. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, it doesn't matter how much we give to the church financially. It doesn't matter how much we give to the church with our time. It doesn't matter how many little old ladies we help cross the street. The reality is, is that me and you are sinners and we do not deserve blessing. But on that day, I I can imagine Joseph getting his two sons ready and I can imagine him thinking, man, this, this is Manasseh's day. I imagine he dressed Manasseh up in his nicest set of clothes. I imagine he, he, was, he was emotional thinking about, oh my gosh, the, as soon as I had my first son, I knew that this was coming. And he walks Manasseh and Ephraim, uh, Ephraim up to Jacob. And before Jacob does the blessing, he does something scandalous. Manasseh here, Ephraim here. The Bible says that Jacob would cross his arms and he would give Ephraim the double portion blessing and Manasseh the undeserving son's blessing. And Joseph is irate and says, what are you doing? This, this doesn't make sense. This is a scandal. 
and the story ends and we don't hear much more about why that took place. But check this out. Here's what this is. It's a picture of the gospel. You see, a little over 2,000 years ago, God would look down at a place called Golgotha at the cross of Calvary, and he would see the firstborn of all creation, the deserving son, the perfect son, the one who deserved all the blessing, the one who was the rightful heir to all the blessings of God. But God would cross his arms that day, and he would pour wrath out on Jesus, and we would get the blessing because of it. I've preached this sermon probably a hundred times in the last few years, I didn't learn until this week that the name Manessa means to make forgetful. And the name Ephraim means to be blessed. See, we have a Manessa whose name was Jesus Christ of Nazareth who took the punishment for us to make forgetful our sins so that we could be blessed. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 puts it this way when it says, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become children of God. So what theologians would call the great exchange. You get Christ and all of his righteousness. He takes your sin upon himself. And so, friend, here's my question for you. Have you accepted this truth? Have you accepted this amazing reality that you did not deserve blessing? You did not deserve salvation. But God would do something so scandalous that he would send Jesus to die in your place so that you could be blessed for eternity. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes with me? I want to do something this morning. Maybe you're in here and you say, no, I've, I've never done that before. I've, I've never accepted what God has done for me, how he took my place, how he gave me blessing and gave Jesus wrath when we deserve the opposite. And if that's you and you want to accept that this morning, you can do that. Right now, where you're at, You can pray out and ask Him to save you. The Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There doesn't have to be any magic words, no formula. You just call out to God and ask Him to save you and He'll do it. For the rest of us, maybe we're struggling like I do so often with this thing of apathy. We've heard the gospel story so much that we've almost become desensitized to it. Well, friend, maybe today you need to grab someone, come down front by yourself, or grab someone and come down and pray and say, God, renew in me the joy of your salvation for me. God, help me defeat this apathy, this lukewarmness in me. Whatever it is that God wants you to do to move this morning, I pray that you would do so before you leave. I'm going to pray, and then we'll stand together and worship. I'll be down front if you need someone to pray with, you want to make a decision. Whatever it is that God is calling you to do, I'll be down front for you. Jesus, we love you. God, thank you that you are our Manasseh. You took our place when we didn't deserve the blessing. You took wrath upon yourself when you were the one who deserved the blessing. 
And so, Jesus, I pray that for us we would live as people who understand that we were headed for eternal damnation until you stepped in by your love for us. And God, when we do that, we'll live differently. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.